outdoor adventure won't wait for engine problems. Things like hard starts, rough performance, and lost fuel economy are often caused by fuel gum and varnish buildup. Seafoam can help your engine run better and last longer. You simply pour a can into your gas tank. Hunters and anglers rely on Seafoam to keep their engines running the way it should the entire season. So pick up a can of Seafoam today at your local auto parts store or visit SeafoamWorks.com to learn more. Market House has the cleanest, leanest, juiciest meat and seafood shipped to your home overnight. Expect the service of a local butcher and the convenience of a large supplier. Unlike many online butchers, you can grab just one meal's worth or lock in for a subscription box. Choose from grass-fed and grass-finished beef, American Wagyu, free-range poultry, grass-fed lamb, wild-caught king crab, seafood, and more. For 15% off your first order, use code COUNTRY at checkout. Just visit MarketHouse.com. That's M-A-R-K-E-T-H-O-U-S-E dot com. And use the code COUNTRY. Hey, we're going to take a little break here and talk about interstate batteries. Now, if you're like me, enjoying the great outdoors, you need gear that is as reliable as it gets. That's why I power my adventures with interstate batteries. I use interstate batteries in my boats. I use interstate batteries in my camper. Great for your truck, too. From Alaska to Montana, they're outrageously dependable. Battery is essential. With over 150,000 dealer locations, finding one is easy. For all your vehicles, land or sea, choose interstate. Head to interstatebatteries.com and find your power today. Welcome to the Wired to Hunt Foundations podcast your guide to the fundamentals of better deer hunting. And now, your host, Tony Peterson. Hey everyone, welcome to the Wired to Hunt Foundations podcast, which is brought to you by First Light. Today's episode is sort of a play off of last week's show. Now this week, in a weird connection to that, I'm talking about buck beds and some of the mysteries that surround them. I'm pretty reluctant to get into this world of scouting and hunting buck beds, or at least I have been. And, uh, you know, I remember reading about Dan Infault and some of these other guys a long time ago, and they were always preaching the virtues of hunting buck beds. And I thought, well, that doesn't make sense. Now, that was because I didn't really understand the value of buck beds. But you can't ignore it forever, no matter how stubborn you are. And I'm pretty stubborn. So lately... Especially in the last couple of years, I've been paying a lot of attention to specific buck beds and trying to factor them into my scouting and my hunting strategies, which is what I'm going to talk about right now. If you follow Mark on social media, you probably saw that he posted about a friendly fishing contest we had back in June. He, along with fellow meat eater guy, Corey Calkins, challenged myself and other meat eater guy, Garrett Long, to a fishing contest. And it was a dumb move on his part for so many reasons. Now, first off, even though they enlisted the help of an oar man in Foundations podcast engineer, Hayden Samack, they were fly fishing for trout. Well, there's, there's nothing wrong with that, mind you. I love fly fishing but you're not likely to stack up a bunch of big, huge trout while fishing from a drift boat. You're just not, especially in about four hours, which is the time we gave ourselves. Now, if they were competing against other fly fishermen, of course they would have had a chance. But Garrett and I weren't fly fishing. 
we were bass fishing out of a bass boat with real fishing tackle, real gear. Now, I'm not saying fly fishing isn't real gear. I'm just saying we had lots of advantages in our spinning and bait casting rods. We also happened to be on a lake that I fish an awful lot all summer long and have fished for years. And we also happened to have an amazing scenario where the water temperature had busted through the 60 degree mark and it stayed there, meaning the smallies were headed shallow to make new smallies. And when they do this, they're pretty easy to catch and they're pretty easy to find. So in other words, you know, Mark and Corey didn't stand a chance, although they talked a lot of shit that they were going to stomp us. They didn't. Garrett and I had too many advantages not the least of which was being a hell of a lot better at fishing. But we also had bedded smallies to work with on a lake that I have fished for 20 years. And do you know where those smallies were bedded mostly? Or a better question would be, do you know why I'm talking about fishing and not bedded bucks? Because those male smallies, they sought out boulders and stumps to build their beds against. And do you know why? Because they are easier to defend if you don't have to worry about an approach from every direction. Let's say you're a smallmouth, you're a 15-inch male smallmouth, and your bed is against a boulder. You, you've already kind of reduced the area in which you have to watch for crayfish or perch or sunfish or any critter that might be looking for a little caviar. Now, bronzebacks aren't building beds to lay down in, obviously. Well, I mean, I guess they kind of are, but not really. They use their tails and fins to create a spot that's just right for a big female to lay her eggs in. Then the males do their thing on the eggs, and they wait for the fry to hatch. But the design is, is meant to make survival of their offspring easier to ensure. Simple stuff. With deer, beds serve a different function, but there are parallels. When you start paying attention to deer beds, you really start to see some patterns emerge. Rarely, maybe almost never, do you see a mature buck bed in a place that doesn't offer at least a few real advantages to him? I don't know. A simple example of this that relates to smallies is how often bucks bed up next to a deadfall or some other piece of structure. They seem to know that coyotes or wolves or Elmer Fudd types aren't going to crash their way through a deadfall to get to them. In that situation, they're taking out the possible approach, or at least one possible approach, of a predator, which narrows down the area they need to monitor with their senses. It's pretty simple, and it's pretty effective. You often see beds on benches, or knobs, or other terrain that offers a clear advantage, usually with elevation, because elevation is important, and bucks know this, and they use it well. Just think about how hard it is to climb up a hill and surprise a deer that is halfway up it looking down. Then think about how hard it would be to approach from above if the wind was blowing downhill, say like in a thermal situation. In those specific cases, good luck. You're not going to get the jump on that buck, and he knows it. That's why they bed where they do. It's why when you're taking a shortcut through the big woods and you cross a swampy meadow, you often find a random big oval on a high hummock that is tucked into a vast landscape that doesn't seem all that special. Or why, when you go pheasant hunting and you decide to let the dogs run through the overgrown homestead for a rooster, you often jump a big buck who waits until the labs are dang near sniffing his butt before he breaks free. 
Those bucks, they understand their world, each and every part of it. And you know what? We really don't. Well, not really. But finding beds, which you can do right now, it's a pretty good start. Now, the beds you find in the middle of the summer, they won't necessarily be the ones that the bucks will use in October. But that doesn't make them valueless, and it doesn't mean that some of those beds don't transcend seasons. Understanding what deer choose to do in all facets of their life is a huge check in the wind column. This is something the industry, and by that I mean the hunting industry, hasn't done a very good job of talking about, but it is absolutely true. The path, or at least I should say a good path to big dead deer on a consistent basis isn't point A to B stuff. It involves a lot of side tangents and a lot of time just looking around. Think about this when you're scouting now. And when you do find a buck bed, or any bed actually, ask why. Why there? And then ask, in what conditions would that be most beneficial? Ask yourself if you feel like maybe you're in a little microclimate where it stays cooler. That's good to know now, because it's good to know in September when the temperatures are high. Ask yourself what wind the buck or deer probably prefer there. And when you get the answer, ask yourself how you'd use that knowledge to your advantage. If a west wind would give him a real edge in a specific bed that you found, how does that work for you? Can you set up on the downwind side to watch him leave? Can you maybe guess his approach route from nearby food sources with that specific wind direction? What is it that he has working for him? And how can you use that against him? Ask yourself, if I bumped him out of that bed, where would he go? And how would he get back? I honestly think one of the biggest mysteries in the whitetail world is buck bedding. We see some of the evidence left behind, but have to fill in so many of the blanks. I mean, I don't know, how often do you actually see a buck lay down in a bed? I scout and hunt quite a bit. And it does not happen to me very often. It really doesn't happen very often with big bucks. And when it does, I pay attention. How they behave in relation to bedding tells you a lot about how secure they are in a spot. And finding places where big bucks are confident you won't kill them or even just come in and bother them is the secret to actually killing them with some frequency. I absolutely 100% believe that. Now, I should expand on something here because I think a lot of the messaging around buck beds and hunting them is kind of incomplete. Or at the very least, we're exposed to sort of a highlight reel from the better buck bed hunters out there. The message is usually that you should find a specific buck's bed and then figure out the conditions in which he'll use it. Then you slip in as close as possible and you shoot him. Ah, easy peasy, lemon squeezy, right? Uh, I don't think so. I think that's wrong. I think it's so wrong. So very, 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 very wrong. Sneaking up on a bedded buck can absolutely be done with the right conditions. But then you've got to have the right conditions and the knowledge that he's actually in the bed when you want to stalk him. Aside from running a cell camera over the bed, which would be at best an ethical gray area, an illegal gray area, I don't, I don't know how you would guarantee something like that. Now you could, in some situations, glass up a bed you suspect has a sleeping buck in it to confirm your suspicion. 
Now that would give you a hell of an advantage, but wouldn't make the final approach much easier unless you had some rain or wind or both to cover up your approach. And we all know that there's probably not that many situations where you're going to easily be able to glass up a bedded buck, maybe out west, maybe in a few more open areas, but in most places, good luck. So maybe a better strategy is to scout your ass off and find some beds without thinking about hunting right over them. Scout them up now, this time of year, and throughout the season. Mark the beds you assume are buck beds, drop a waypoint, whatever you got to do, and then factor that into a bigger strategy. Let's just say, like, for example, if you find a bed in a marsh on public land where you could slip in and saddle up close by, give that a shot. You'll learn a lot about your skills in that move and a lot about whether the buck is actually killable that way or not. If you find a big oval next to a deadfall, you know, halfway up a bluff side on a little bench, oh, maybe you won't be able to get as close. Fine. What next then? Is he killable on top of the ridge or in the valley below? Is there a reason for him to side hill into or out of that bed that will give you some kind of ambush option, some kind of advantage? The benefit of focusing on beds, specific individual buck beds, is that you might know exactly where a buck is going or exactly where he is or exactly where he might be coming from. And that's not nothing, my friends. That's a big deal and it is doable. And it's also important to note that trying new hunting styles and techniques and forcing yourself to think about deer in a new way is a tremendous opportunity to actually grow as a hunter and get way better. Remember at the beginning of this podcast when I talk about how I kicked Mark's ass at a fishing contest? Well, I used to fish a lot of bass tournaments. I still fish a few, but I used to fish a lot. Now this, That was in a past life, and I was as obsessed with it as I am with bow hunting whitetails. Now, there are plenty of downsides to that life on the road chasing little green and brown fish, especially if you're a young, drunken idiot. But one of the upsides that I didn't see coming when I registered for my first tournament was that it would force me to get better, way better. And it did this on two fronts. The first was that I started out on the amateur or co-angler side. That meant I was paired up with a professional. And in some tournaments, you'd work as a team. And in some tournaments, you'd fish against each other out of the same boat. No matter the format, getting to fish with someone who was really good was always a humbling experience. I learned a ton from some of those pros, and it forced me to think about how much better I could be. The other thing was that fishing new lakes and new river systems and new reservoirs meant that there were a lot of techniques that could work better than what I was comfortable doing. Now, the problem would be like, say, I don't know, the largemouth were schooled up on a sunken rock pile in July, or they were 20 feet deep on weed lines lounging out around the thermocline, eating crayfish or whatever. Now, if you primarily love to throw spinnerbaits or some other chunk and wine lure, you might fish, I don't know, 18 feet above those largies. But someone, several someones probably in a tournament, they're going to figure out how to drag a Carolina rig past them and light them up. Getting your ass handed to you by someone who is better at a technique like that, it really kind of forces you to want to learn it, or it should. I miss that aspect of tournament fishing, because if you don't like losing, and who really does, you're going to work on some new stuff and you're going to get better. Whitetail hunting is no different. And a great example of that just might be bed hunting 
or at least focusing on finding and reading buck beds. While I'm far from an expert on this topic, I'm trying to get better. And one thing I've learned is that beds become more important to me when I not only think about them, but give myself a good reminder. If I find a bed while scouting that I think belongs to a big deer, I immediately drop a waypoint in that exact spot. Then I usually key in a few notes as well to remember things like wind direction and what would you know the conditions most likely be for a buck to use that specific bed. And if you start to find a few of those beds on a specific property, you can really kind of begin to piece together an idea of what bucks are really doing throughout the daylight hours. Now, it's worth saying that you might find three or four obvious buck beds on a property and they might belong to three or four different bucks or they might belong to one. But the good news is it probably doesn't matter. If you know where a good buck likes to bed and what conditions he's likely to bed there, you have an advantage for the season, but also several seasons to come. This is one of the things that fascinates me most about buck beds, honestly. While food sources often change from year to year, and you know, travel routes might change depending on a litany of factors, a good bedding site often doesn't. This is because they are so closely tied to the terrain, which means it's not likely that the knob on the ridge is going to wash away in a huge rainstorm or become altered in some way from one season to the next. And sure, you know, logging activity could do it and too much hunting pressure could convince bucks to look for better spots. But if nothing really big interferes with their bedding spot, bucks will keep using it. And why does that matter? Well, what if you scout your ass off this summer and you find, I don't know, six spots where the biggest buck on your property likes to bed? You probably think you got him dialed, right? Like, you might as well just call a taxidermist now and tell him to order up a form because this is a done deal. But what if your neighbor goes out on opening night and kills the buck you've staked out for all your scouting and hunting time? You've hung your You've hung your hat on that buck and he's toast. Aside from sewing up a little voodoo doll to look like your neighbor and then spending your night sticking hot needles into its delicates in the hopes that your no good buck shooting neighbor will suddenly get super sharp pains in his undercarriage. You also know that that big buck chose those spots for a reason. And you know who else is going to figure that out? The next buck in line. I talked about this a little bit ago and I really mean it. That's right. And while it might not be the second biggest buck on your ground, you know that it's highly likely that when King Kong gets arrowed and opens up a power vacuum, someone is coming in to take advantage of his spot. It's very likely that that someone is a buck who recognizes the same survival advantages that the previous buck did. And you know what? He's going to set up shop there. These generational findings are a gift to us whitetail hunters and while it's nice to figure out what apple tree is dropping during september so you can set up there right now by that i mean in the season not don't do it right now it's also nice to find certain things in the woods that should be used by bucks consistently from year to year to year to year it doesn't take too many of those before you've always got a decent idea of what should be going on in the woods and if you don't think that matters Hang out with someone who is a lot better hunter than you, if you can find one. They'll be thinking about that stuff all the time, and it'll factor into their scouting decisions and their hunting decisions. 
it'll drive where they walk, where they hang cameras, and eventually where they hang their happy ass off a side of a specific tree throughout the fall. So go find some beds, mark them, think about them, consider why a buck would use them and when he'd be there. Don't rely solely on their locations to end your scouting efforts, but use them to enhance the bigger picture. That's the best method for becoming better at this stuff. And be sure to tune in next week because I'm going to talk about why settling with your equipment throughout the summer shooting sessions is a surefire way to screw up a shot on a deer come fall. That's it for this week, folks. I'm your host, Tony Peterson. This has been the Wired to Hunt Foundations podcast, which is brought to you by First Light. As always, thank you so much for your support. All of us here at Meat Eater really, truly appreciate it. And if you want more whitetail goodness, head on over to the Wired to Hunt YouTube channel and check out all of our videos that we drop every week or head on over to themeateater.com slash wire to read a bunch of deer hunting articles. Outdoor adventure won't wait for engine problems. Things like hard starts, rough performance, and lost fuel economy are often caused by fuel gum and varnish buildup. Seafoam can help your engine run better and last longer. You simply pour a can into your gas tank. Hunters and anglers rely on seafoam to keep their engines running the way it should the entire season. So pick up a can of seafoam today at your local auto parts store or visit seafoamworks.com to learn more. Market House has the cleanest, leanest, juiciest meat and seafood shipped to your home overnight. Expect the service of a local butcher and the convenience of a large supplier. Unlike many online butchers, you can grab just one meal's worth or lock in for a subscription box. Choose from grass-fed and grass-finished beef, American Wagyu, free-range poultry, grass-fed lamb, wild-caught king crab, seafood, and more. For 15% off your first order, use code COUNTRY at checkout. Just visit MarketHouse.com. That's M-A-R-K-E-T-H-O-U-S-E dot com. And use the code COUNTRY.